with your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from Republic Broadcasting, and coming to you, as always, from the palatial home broadcasting studios of Corbett Report here in the sunny climes of western Japan. And uh, the random noises you might hear in the background tonight are all due to my lovely wife, who is at home today, as this is some sort of national holiday here in Japan. I'm not even sure what holiday it is, but there you go. So that's just part of the daily uh, life here in Japan, which at the moment is, of course, more and more disturbing as uh, new signs of recriticality keep coming out of Fukushima, uh, the stricken nuclear plant in the northeast part of Japan, and very worrying developments there. But tonight we're going to be looking at a very, very different issue. Tonight we're going to be looking at the concept of money. I know this is something that is on a lot of people's minds a lot of the time, including mine, because... Once again, we live in a society that has been engineered around this idea of money. And yet very few of us know what it is, where it comes from, how it's created, or what purpose it really serves in our economy. And yet we all know at some level that there's something very much wrong with the society that we're living in. And we know whether you're on the left or the right side of the phony political paradigm, or if, as Rick Adams was just talking about at the end of his segment there, if, if you've broken out of that paradigm and you realize that left and right are just uh, two different sides of the same coin that are used to mentally enslave us, then and perhaps you know that, uh, that really it doesn't matter where you are on that political spectrum or what you think or whether you're for the Occupy movement or whether you're against it or what p- particular political persuasion you have. Money is very much something that, that is used as a tool of control. And it's something that, as more and more people are becoming aware, is created through the banking system, for the most part, which is uh, something that does not work out for anyone except for the bankers. So how have we arrived at this, this spot in history, at this time, in this economy, with the banks creating the money out of nothing and lending it to us in order for us to pay it back to them at interest? How did we arrive at that particular spot in history? Well, I think it's quite obvious that the banks have had their hand in that for a very long time. And that's why more and more and more and more and more wealth keeps getting accrued in fewer and fewer and fewer hands. And as we know, really what money signifies in our society is power, because it is used as a way of leveraging power over people. And when money is debt, as it is in our economy... And when money is based on debt, well, that's, that means you can put people into servitude for the entirety of their lives, breaking their backs and putting their blood, sweat, and tears into producing things for the real economy, and all of that just to try to earn enough money to put a roof over someone's head and food on the table, and if you're lucky, to have enough savings to retire on when you hit 65. And most people, unfortunately, are not so lucky in this day and age. And more and more people are getting foreclosed on. And all of this, even as the banks continue to get richer and richer and richer, the banksters keep getting more and more money, and they keep foreclosing on more and more people. And there's something very, very much wrong with the money system that's been created, and really for the interests of the banks and the banksters. And the average person, as I say, slaves their whole life 
just trying to earn enough to try to put a roof over their head. So the question, obviously, once we understand that there's something very much wrong with our monetary system is, what can we do about that? How can we change it into something that's stable and for the good of humanity? Well, we're going to be talking about that tonight with our very special guest, Paul Grignon of Money as Debt. So stay tuned, and after the break, we'll be back right back with Paul Grignon. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. I am your host, James Corbett, broadcasting to you out of Republic Broadcasting at republicbroadcasting.org and also blasting out of KHFX 1140 AM in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So a welcome to one and all to tonight's uh, broadcast. Of course, I am James Corbett, and my website is corbettreport.com. And tonight we're lucky to have on the line a very, very, very knowledgeable man on the subject of money. What is money? Where does it come from? And more importantly, how can we create a money system that works for us and reflects the real value in our society, which comes from our work, not from financial manipulation of digits on a computer screen, as unfortunately so much of our economy is based on right now. So tonight we're going to move to the shores of Western Canada in the beautiful province of British Columbia to talk to Paul Grignon, a documentary filmmaker who has made some films which I'm willing to bet a lot of people out there have heard of, and that is Money as Debt, and now Money as Debt 2 and Money as Debt 3 are also available. And all of these documentaries are available from, well, Paul Grignon's many websites. He has many different ways to, to find him online. Probably the best way is just to do a, a, a search for Money as Debt, but you can also, of course, find that at moneyasdebt.net. So, Paul Grignon, it's great to have you on the line tonight. Thank you so much for joining us on Corbett Report Radio. My pleasure, Gene. All right. Well, it it is great to have you here to start going through this this really mind-bending subject of money because it's something that I obviously everybody knows at a certain level that that money is what controls us and controls so much of what we do on a day-to-day basis, but so few people understand what it is, where it comes from, how it functions. So I guess when we start talking about this this really mind-boggling subject, I, I could find few better ways to start introducing it to people than by urging them to watch your excellent seven-and-a-half-minute breakdown called The Essence of Money, which I think is just a great way of, of really describing to people what money is and how it works. But perhaps you can give us a breakdown here of, of what that is and then lead into the idea of uh, self-issued credit, which is a your solution for, for our monetary problems. Well, we are currently enslaved or encircled by concept of money as a single uniform commodity in limited supply. And we took on that concept of money because it did not have any technology other than to make small valuable objects that we could carry from place to place to this money. So for long-distance trade, we had to develop silver and gold coins. That was, and they became, they were valuable because those things were rare and hard to come by. So that technological limitation doesn't exist anymore, and yet we still conceive of money as a quantity in limited supply that we have to get from somebody. And we're trained to think that we, well actually we're trained by the news, we watch the, uh, the printing press cranking out dollars 
and that reinforces the I, the false idea that the government prints money. Only it did, it would be a little better. Yeah, Only. well, that's exactly right. I think, again, we are tricked on so many levels, and, and you're right, a lot of people have this conception that money is this physical cash that we see getting printed out. Well, if but you go by what you see on the news, that's the image they feed you, right? You always get the picture of the mint, it's either coins or, or your bills coming out, because we are taught to think that all of the money, including the numbers in our bank account, are the same as those dollar bills. The numbers in our bank account are promises of dollar bill. When we go to the bank and ask for them in ca- our, our bank balance in cash or some part of it in cash, then the bank's obligated to give it to us in cash. But otherwise, that number is just a promise of cash on demand. And since we do almost all of our business these days using the promises of cash rather than the cash, the banks don't have anywhere near enough cash to cover all their promises. And why should they? Cash is already almost obsolete. Just as, as cash replaced, paper cash replaced gold as the basis of the money system, now there's really no practical need for paper cash either. Really, so if, if the money isn't the cash... It's a serial number. <laughs> well, yeah, that's about right. Well, if, if the money isn't the cash then, and if it isn't uh, what we think of in terms of the press or the, the, the mint, then then what is the, the role of the central banks? I know it varies from country to country, and the Bank of Canada is different than the Federal Reserve, but all, overall, what is the role of a central bank in a system like that? Well, the central bank is the entity that gets the money printed. Okay, so the money in Canada, there's two different printing companies that do the printing, and then actually in the United States, it is actually a government agency that does the physical printing of the cash, but it's not the government agency, it's the Federal Reserve that gets the cash printed for the cost of the paper and the ink. And with that cash, they then buy um, government bonds, which are taxpayer debt at interest. And so in order to, in order, so people think that cash is somehow better than bank credit, but in actual fact, considering the government debt just keeps going up and up and up, cash is a debt of the taxpayer on which you're paying interest forever. In a way, it's worse than bank credit. Hmm. Bank credit yeah. is just promises this stuff. Exactly Doing, right, and and that's that's important for people to grasp because really what that promise is 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 the uh, the bank creates that promise of cash in your bank account when you sign over a promise uh, on based on a loan where you sign over your collateral or whatever it is to promise that in the future you will pay them back plus interest on that that money that they are promised. Yeah, you or promise, promise them a dollar, they promise you a dollar. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And yet they make money on that exchange, which is somewhat mind-boggling. Well, and then when you don't pay uh, and they take your your, uh, your, your forfeit your house, well, then it gets serious. Right? You forfeited your house because you didn't pay back money the bank never had in the first place. And worse yet, they, they gamble the system, with though, the... Because it has to make up for your loss. See, the bank didn't have the money in the first place, but if you don't pay it back, then it becomes real bank actually takes the loss on its books, which limits the amount of credit it can create in the future. So if it takes too many losses, you end up with a contraction of credit. And when, as I've explained in Money is Debt 2, and I do it again in 3, uh, we're in a ratchet effect. We, we have a debt bubble, and anytime the bubble shrinks, that's when everybody starts losing their jobs and their houses and everything else. As long as the bubble is forever expanding, it, it works. The, the system only works with expansion. It never works.
those contractions. And yet and the wealth itself is not created or destroyed. That just gets transferred to the fewer and fewer hands. Well, sure, they seize your collateral because you didn't pay back your, your, your debt because there wasn't enough money in circulation because there weren't enough new borrowers to put enough new money into circulation to make sure that you could pay off your debt. And that's, that's, the, that's the problem with the debt money system. All the money is debt. So and, uh, it has to maintain a certain level of debt. But if the whole total volume of debt shrinks or, or the ability of, of banks to borrow from each other, for instance, because they have to do that constantly, uh, that's when you have a credit crunch when, when the banks don't trust each other. Uh, the, the whole system is based on borrowing. And you can always borrow some more money simply by promising to pay it back. And that, to me, is one of the problems. But a more fundamental problem is the concept of money as a single commodity and limited supply in the first place. Uh, say, in, in the essence of money, Anton creates money by promising, writing a chit that promises one of his loaves of bread. Well, his loaf of bread is worth, in the price system that people were using, his loaf of bread would have cost one quarter of the silver penny. And it can four loaves to a penny. Right, so let's just set this up for the listeners who haven't seen the essence of money, because there might be a few out there. Let's set this up, because you do a great job of breaking down a marketplace in an imaginary town in, in the Middle Ages or whenever, and, and talking about the different people and their functions in that economy and how the different transactions can work or should work. So, so let's let's flesh this out a little bit. Tell us about Anton the Baker and the different people in this town. Verbal description. Well, this is the, what the people did in the, the medieval market. I didn't make this up. They, uh, whenever there was sort of coin shortage, and, and it's always it's always been a problem with precious metal money that if you hang on to it, it becomes worth more. Right. So those who have it periodically hang on onto it, and then its value goes up in the marketplace. So hoarders could withdraw their money from the marketplace, and people would come to the market with all the value of their produce. They had all the real things they've grown and produced and made with their own hands, and they got no money. So what do you do? You go home or you come up with something else? I mean, barter takes all day. You try to arrange a trade through direct barter, and it's hopeless. I mean, nobody has ever successfully operated an economy on barter. Uh, most, mostly it goes directly from gifting to money. Um, so... In the, in, the, in the film, and, and they're, they're, none of them are actually films. It's a cartoon. It's all done on a computer. Uh, Anton, the baker, who has a very reliable product, his bread, issues a, a vouchers good for bread. Well, they're defined in value. It's a portable object defined in value by what you get for it. It's the same as, say, if it was a promise of gold or silver. It's a promise of bread. So it's defined in value, and it gets used uh, as a value unit to pass amongst other people to, for them to facilitate their trade. And eventually it comes back to Anton um, as redeemed for a loaf of bread and ceases to circulate until Anton sends it again. And that is a whole different principle of money altogether, because there you have money that is not created as a single uniform commodity. It's a promise of something specific from someone specific. And that's the principle that all community currencies and alternative currencies and lets, they're all variations on the same concept of self-issuing credit. 
That's right, right, and I want to get into some of those uh, those alternative currencies and things that you mentioned because they they already do exist. And so, what you're proposing is not some radical new alternative. It's just a, a more, I think, well thought out and, and way of basing an entire economy on that. But um, but I, I think the the idea of self issued credit is really just fascinating. So we better start opening that uh, that Pandora's box uh, when we come back in our next segment. But for right now, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation with Paul Grignon, it's 1-800-313-9443. So we're looking forward to your calls. Thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for more. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, my friends. Tonight we are talking to Paul Grignon of MoneyAsDebt.net and the number to join us, 1-800-313-9443. So thank you again for tuning in. And tonight we're talking about a revolutionary idea for a uh, completely different way of basing our economy, not on bankster credits that's uh, owed at debt and interest back to the banksters, nor on gold or silver coins, but on self-issued credit, the idea that we can give out vouchers for the goods and services that we will produce in the future. Uh, a simple idea, but revolutionary in so many ways. And there are so many aspects of this that I find really fascinating. And, and it seems to be a system that, that really is based on the idea of, of sustainability, of, of some sort of accountability, of, of inherent justice. There are a lot of things that seem built into this system. So I suggest that you go to Money as Debt to start watching the, uh, the documentary and and finding out more about how the system works. But, uh, but Paul, let's start uh, uh, unpacking this idea of self-issued credit, because as I mentioned, there's such a circularity to the flow of this system that I think is, is really quite parsimonious, kind of beautiful in its own way, but also I think inherently it brings with it some, some aspect of justice. Perhaps you can talk about some of those aspects of, of this um, new, different mon- monetary system that you're proposing. Um, the, the circularity is an attempt, I guess, to imitate nature, and it is the fundamental idea of a balanced budget. Ends are produced, and then you earn back when you sell your production. This is what we do now. When you you're just letting the bank get in the middle, uh, the banks don't. I mean, I, I, I get a little. I get a little. Quiver when people say banks create money out of nothing. Uh, no, they don't. They they create money against an asset, and your promising to pay it back is the asset that they create the money against. What they are doing is underwriting you because who the hell are you? It does the problem with self issued credit is if I Paul Green go out and start spending money against my production. Well, who the hell am I? <laughs> and nobody's going to trust me, and my production is is hardly reliable enough to base money on. But a large company is, and any government that collects taxes is. And so more in the collective that this would work rather than at the individual level. But as you noticed in the movie, it's open to anybody. I mean, if you can create a circle of trust, as people do with alternative currencies right now. You can have neighborhood currencies. You can have village currencies. You can have the local currency at any level. And these would all be technologically compatible with the larger ones because they all, as you can see, it was in a total, total libertarian chaos, a kind of system where people only accept 
credit they want to accept. If I don't want to let Monsanto's credit pass through me, I could say no. Can't pass through me. I could boycott any anybody's credit I want, which would add another little arsenal to um, social social exercising the uh, the common will, you know, the people's will. Right. That's an important aspect of this, because really what in such a system, what people are trading is, is not these 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 promises uh, that we understand as money today. It's it's really a, a promise to pay a specific good or service from a specific person. So the credit, for example, might have originated with Monsanto or some other identifiable company or, or something. And you would know who it is. And right now, when they borrow money, say no bank, if you didn't you're forced, forced to accept it by legal tender laws. And you don't know whose credit it is. It's all anonymous. And in this other system, credit would not be anonymous. Everybody who issues it be known. Another aspect of this that I, I like is the inherent ability to decentralize the system. Because, of course, right now it does function at a national currency level. And things and decisions that are made by, by politicians in a faraway place can have an effect on our savings and our ability to spend and all of this. Which, which again is is a ridiculous system on so many levels. But in the self issued credit system, if you are able, if you are an issuer, then you really do have control over over your own currency. I mean, it, it's 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 really up to you and and to your company or whatever it is, whatever operation that you're you're running. Yes, and the same for government, and in, and the way the uh, automatic, the automated aspects of it work is that you could not get out of whack very far before um, the losses spread amongst everybody who uses your credit, which would make you very unpopular. And that could become a self-inflicted um, wound. And, you know, there's a strong incentive to total responsibility because there's a huge penalty for irresponsible, and there's actually no way to pile up debt on future generations. That's that's the big, big features I was looking for. All, all money is extinguished within a short time, either redeemed for product or it ceases to exist and hold things uh, over uh, an issuer forever. So the the debts are the debts must be extinguished by their expiry date. Oh, there's all kinds of features. I think that people trading these credits, you know, behind the scenes, what they what they think would would, would provide an enormous amount of anonymous but useful information about consumer preferences and and, and the help the producers plan for realistically. That's, that's if we were in a, an economy where instead of trying to sell everything we can, you know, because we want to make as much money as we can, our goal is simply to supply the people's needs the most efficient way possible. Right, exactly. All right, well, let's pick it up from there. Let's take a few-minute break, and we'll be right back with Paul Grignon. Once again, 1-800-313-9443. We'll get you up and on the air. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome 
Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here on Corbett Report Radio. And, of course, urging people and reminding people to check FukushimaUpdate.com, one of my many websites, for the latest on the unfolding situation at Fukushima, the nuclear power plant in the northeast of Japan, where, unfortunately, it's now been confirmed. The Tokyo Electric Power Company is now confirming that the the molten slag heap in Reactor 2 has achieved recriticality, at least for a uh, brief period or so they're saying, or trying to convince us, um, which is uh, a very worrying turn of events. So all of the latest on that is at FukushimaUpdate.com. And um, if uh, it were up to me, and if we lived in a self-issued credit economy, I'd probably not be accepting Tokyo Electric Power Company's credits. But unfortunately, we don't live in such a society. But we are talking tonight to Paul Grignon of MoneyAsDebt.net, creator of a very, very important trilogy of, of movies that are, uh, I think, just absolutely brilliantly put together and very much explain what, what is going on and what, where we can take our economy, because ultimately the value of our economy is based on our work and our productivity and the real blood, sweat, and tears we put into creating things of value. And that's where real wealth and value come from, not from uh, the, the parlor tricks that go on in the casino gulag that the banksters are running behind the scenes which is unfortunately the way our current system is geared. So I'm happy to be talking about this tonight. And one of the things that I wanted to address specifically was something from Money as Debt and from uh, the Digital Coin proposal at digitalcoin.info, which I thought was just brilliant, is the way that, well, you break down what money is in a way that, that very few other people do. And you, you know it's something I think that, that really stick, sticks with me and that I try to bring up to other people because it, I think it's just such an important part of understanding this mess is that uh, that we have a system which is based on, for example, uh, a uniform commodity like gold or something. If we had a system like that, you, you come up with this, this sort of ridiculous situation where you can actually not have people facilitating trades because there isn't enough of this substance physically available. And as you say in, in that uh, documentary, it's kind of like a, a builder saying that he can't finish building a house because of a lack of inches. I mean, it makes no sense if money is some way of valuing a substance, but it's only because we base it on some single uniform commodity or some scarce thing that that it, that sort of situation can arise. So perhaps and we only did that. that because we didn't have the technology to do long-distance trade in any other way except encapsulating value in small portable objects like coins. And in other cases, of various uh, jewelry in general, you know, gems and, and all the valuable rare things became money because they were portable. But we don't need that now. We're so far beyond that. <laughs> Why are we still using that as our model of money? It was That's the only reason we ever used it. Before the people made coins, we used to use self-issued credit. You'd grow some wheat, you'd store it in the granary, you would draw a receipt against your own wheat in the granary, and then you'd go spend it. And it would circulate as money, and eventually you would come back to the granary and somebody would buy your wheat. That was 5,000 years ago. That was what money originally was. So it's not a new idea. It's just with new technology, it can be a worldwide idea now instead of just a local one. Because in those days, the money could only circulate within the you know, donkey distance of the granary. Now, right, and so in order to facilitate broader trade, we needed to to have something that could be universally recognized. So gold. But yeah, if you're going to India, you're not going to take some claims on some woolen socks you can get in Brussels, <laughs> right? You have to take gold or silver because you know nobody in India can directly uh, access 
a, a promise, a voucher for a product back in Europe. So, yeah, and that's why gold and silver did succeed, because they were more or less equally valued all the way from Europe to, to cafe. Uh, although there was a carry trade between Europe and India, because India uh, India's ratio of gold to silver was different than Europe's, and so it was paid to take one to one country and then trade it for the other and bring it back. Let's let's start breaking this down and looking looking at some specific examples to see how this this could really work in the real economy. Because I think a lot of people will still have the the types of questions like, well, if we can just create our own our own money through self issued credit, well, why why wouldn't we just create as much as we could ever need and we'll all be millionaires or, or some something like that? I mean, obviously, there's there's technical uh, ways that this obviously is in my system, uh, all all credits are rejected by default. So if you and I decide to go out and issue credit, there won't be a single person in the world that will accept it. So that's the number one reason. Exactly. So let, let's look at that. So they're in the system, there would be certain issuers who have reliable okay, products. Say your local that, municipal that, government decides to, uh, I mean, right now they issue bonds and pay interest on it, but why don't they just bend credits into existence and then tax them back? And if, you, if a government can... can uh, issue money based on its ability to tax, well, then anybody who produces something can issue money based on their ability to get those prices back when they sell their production. See the logic of it? I mean, it works the same for government as it works for um, a private enterprise, is that if there is a demand, you can then spend the, the money that represents that demand. And in the system I've created in the in the money is that three, I've sort of shown how with really simple arithmetic stuff we all learned in public school and not even high school, that you could manage a, a whole self balancing economy where money revalues itself in real time according to how much has been spent. If somebody ends more than the demand for their production, then the value of the money goes down. And those losses are socialized amongst everybody who's holding that but that that, that credit. So, I mean, there are always inevitable losses in business. In, in the system I've designed, they're immediately socialized amongst those who voluntarily accepted the credit. And there's no way that these debts are carried on and laid on to our great-great-grandchildren like we're doing now. But if the system got to the point where there was this widespread use of these credits and they were, they were flowing freely and there were so many of them out there, would people be scrutinizing each individual credit and where it was coming from and the company's history and all of that? Well, that might be a wise thing to do, and it might be wise to, for a very small percentage to entrust that to a brokerage that actually did their due diligence. You know, there is a chapter in there in which I described the, the two basic laws that would really need to be applied, where, where this isn't just a libertarian thing. It does need the assistance of, of course, the court to enforce these contracts. And it needs two basic laws that brokerages, get paid by the receivers of the credit, not the issuers or sellers, and then brokerages get paid in the exact same mix of credit that they get for their clients. And with those two rules, there would never be any advantage to a broker to cheat. It would always do the best for their clients because it would do the best for them. And that way they, you could get, uh, you know, people would do, do their due diligence on the various issuers. And, and the broker would have the great, the most successful broker would be the one who provided the clients with the most reliable credit. That's simple. 
And as you point out in, in the documentary, in fact, there would still be a place for, for even for speculators in this uh, self-issued credit economy. And in fact, it would be quite the reverse, whereas, of course, speculators are uh, really vultures and the hyenas preying on people in our economy. In the self-issued credit economy, they would kind of be knights in shining armor. Perhaps you could explain that concept. Well, because the only way to speculate on currency in this structure of money is to buy up um, um, credits that have become devalued. Uh, one point I'll have to raise is that the issuer of a credit always has to honor their credit and product at the full price, full regular price. So it doesn't matter how low it sinks in value in trade, that's based on the demand for the product, but it's always redeemable for the full price in the actual product, okay? So that's the backstop of every one of these credits. And if speculators think that a credit has become devalued, and they think it will go back up in value, they would they would buy it, and that would bring it back up in value. So every time that they think that a business is on its way down, um, possibly for no good reason, they would uh, rescue it simply by trading for its undervalued currency and then taking a profit by selling the, the currency when it was with the credits when they were more valuable. So if company XYZ is issuing these credits to their employees and to their suppliers and to people that they're purchasing from, which are really just vouchers to get their product in the future, how does company XYZ actually make a profit from their production? Well, the, 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 as I said, the profit chapter in the movie starts off by saying that you make a profit the same way you do now. You sell it for more than it costs to make. Thing is that if you do that and you're an issuer, you will end up overvaluing your own credit because you will be taking more out than you're producing, and that will drive the value of your credit over par, which means that people have to spend fewer of them to get your product, which self-corrects back down to zero, and you don't make a profit. So what you have to do is you have to always spend your profit, and that's that's another feature. I, issuers are all only can realize the profit by spending it. That way profits don't pile up as profits, as money profits that breed more money profits that breed more money profits. The profits are taken, and then they're immediately spent back into the economy. They have to be, otherwise they can't be realized. What a revolutionary concept. And I do stress revolutionary because it is just so absolutely different from our system where, of course, hoarding and, and trying to s save money and keep money in order to make money is, is unfortunately part of the course. So, so it is a, a fundamental revolution in even our thinking of, of how the economy works. Well, I don't think it would stop certain ambitious people from getting rich. I just think they'd have to get rich by being very productive. They'd have to provide real value and and that would get rid of the parasites, but I'm not against people getting rich if, they, if that's what they want and they've worked hard and they've produced something of value. Now go for it. But I think I've managed to eliminate most of the uh, parasitic opportunities that exist so abundantly in our current money system. Unfortunately so, yeah, exactly. Well, I think, again, probably the easiest way for people to envision something like this is, is one of the, uh, the the alternative currencies or some system like that that already exists. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more detail about LETS or some of these other systems that have already been implemented. Well, in Greece, they're already uh, 
resorting to these, and they're quite well organized from what I see on the news. Um, the simplest thing that people can usually conceive of is time dollars, where you just trade hour for hour for time. It doesn't always have to be equal. Some, some systems want everybody's time to be equal, but, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily fair. Um, but however you do it, you just envision exchanging time for time. Um, in other systems, you have mutual credit where you all belong to an accounting system, and if you sell something to somebody, then you have a credit in the system and they have a debit. And and you can exchange credits and debits, and you don't actually have any money or bank account. You're simply making exchanges, and you're always paying with your real goods and services. But in that case, you, everybody always has to be a member, and everybody's transactions are always open to everybody. Now, the difference with the system... I'm proposing is that manufacturers and governments produce these credits, entities that aren't going to disappear tomorrow. And these already exist, not so much the governments, although governments have done this in the past very successfully. Um, the American Revolution was actually fought over this issue. The, uh, the, any, any company can produce a promise of its own product. And we, we have such things as uh, uh, in barter networks. Business, business barter networks are flourishing now where companies, most of them kind of mid-level companies, are promising, making promises in, of their own production. And they, they trade using these things, and they value them sometimes. Mostly they value them in national currencies. That's another issue because if you're valuing things in national currencies, of course you've got this fluctuating, devaluating number. It would be nice to, to strike out and form a new uh, value unit as well, one that isn't tied directly to any of the existing currencies. Uh, that's a bit much to get into. Anyhow, the, these models of money already exist. They're already working. The technologies, there seems to be a plethora of technologies with which to implement the idea. That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is that we have been stuck in this idea of money as a limited quantity that some of this thing comes from the government. Now we find out that some of it comes from the government's central bank um, as our own debt, and then it's on public debt, and then the rest of it comes as private debt. Because all we have to do is promise to pay it back, and bingo, there's some new money created. So this isn't really um, connected to productivity. Like it might be connected to expectations of productivity or expectations of profit, but it's not connected directly to productivity because all these are debts of money. They're not promises of real things to be produced within the next year. Mm. Promises of 30 years of servitude to pay off your house. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, again, the mortgage uh, mortgages in a self-issued credit economy, of course, would be completely different, and you go into that a bit in the documentary. Perhaps you can tell us well, about that. Well, I use that, that as a, a partnership model. If nobody owes the bank, if the builder doesn't owe the bank, then he doesn't have a time clock running on him. All he has to do is produce a house that somebody wants to buy, and then they enter into a partnership agreement and slowly buy his partnership out. Now, of course, eventually there would be partnership companies that would buy out the builder, and you, people would be paying their mortgages to the partnership company. But at all this time, you're in a partnership model. You can't, you can't ever lose your equity in your partnership. However, if you don't keep up your payments as agreed, then the other partner becomes the active partner and you get to watch them sell it to somebody else <laughs> if you're not paying for it. But you never get kicked out. You never get foreclosed on or, or 
Well, you'll get kicked out, but you won't lose your equity in it. And, and you never get a bank behind the scenes bundling up your mortgage with a bunch of others and uh, using them as a, as a type of... Well, if you um, couldn't afford a house, say you got in over your head and you lost your job and you couldn't afford the house you're in, right? Well, you could you could just... You wouldn't lose your equity in that house. You would still, ha- you would still have that equity and it could be, you would be getting part of the incoming payments of whoever moves into it while you're moving down into the next house to whatever ex-partnership arrangement you agreed to get into. But all of these are pay-as-you-go. None of them necessarily have a rigid monthly schedule or 30-year deadline or anything. It's simply between you and the builder and you and the other owner. There's no bank necessarily involved. And just the flexibility of this, because, I mean, what, what purpose does it serve to throw people out of their house so that they're outside in a tent while their house gets stripped of its copper wiring? I mean, it doesn't serve anybody's purpose. It certainly doesn't. I mean, it, it's such a, a bizarre and ridiculous idea that we've that we've arrived at this this spot where we have this type of thing going on on such a mass level, and everyone just internalizes it and takes it as just oh, this is the way things function, and uh, very few people can break snap out of that and really start trying to look for something that's that's truly different and, and as I say, a revolutionary way of looking at the issue. So, so my hats off to you for for really stepping outside of the box and and really developing this idea. So once again, I'm going to direct people to moneyasdebt.net because I really hope that people will will at least uh, take a look at the work if they haven't done so yet because it, it's just laid out in so, uh, such intricacy. I mean, you've obviously spent quite a long time developing the, these ideas. When and where did you start developing this? Oh, sorry, we're about to go to break. <laughs> Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. And if you want to reach Republic Broadcasting, the Republic Broadcasting Network, you can, of course, reach them at republicbroadcasting.org. And you can also check them out on Facebook, facebook.com slash republicbroadcastingnetwork, or Twitter at RBN Live. If you want to write into Republic Broadcasting, it's 2251 Double Creek Drive, number 302, Round Rock, Texas, 78664. And you can reach them at 1-800-724-2719. If you want to reach yours truly, your humble host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, please go to Corbett Report and use the contact form to get in touch with me directly. But I, uh, I guess wrapping up tonight's conversation, we're talking, of course, to Paul Greenon of Money as Debt, and we've been talking about some pretty heavy ideas. So I hope people do get the chance to check out Money as Debt and start contemplating this for themselves because it's a, it's a revolutionary system in a lot of ways, and it takes a bit of thinking to get your head around it, but once you do, I think you'll see that there is there are a lot of different ways of organizing an economy, and this sounds like a lot better one in a lot of ways, so I'm very much looking forward to continuing to delve into this subject in the future. But, Paul, just in the closing couple of minutes here, I know this is such a, a, a huge concept, and it, 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 in some ways it's quite simple, but in some ways it's deceptively simple, and I think there's a lot to it, and you've obviously put a lot of work into this. But the question always comes back to the, the powers that shouldn't be and how we've arrived at the system that we're in, which obvious, so obviously benefits the very few. And it raises the question of how we can move from here to there. How can we get to the, something like a self-issued credit economy? Because uh, as we know, the, uh, the people who are in charge of the system as it is and want to maintain the status quo have an awful lot of power and resources to try to stop any fundamental revolution. 
Well, I think the natural level to take this to is um, municipal level government and local businesses, especially in suffering towns. This has all been done before. It was all done in the Depression. It has done great effect in a little town of Wurgel in Austria. It was so successful there that actually the central bank shut it down by force. But um, that's one of the things, active depression. But um, alternative monies like this exist in Europe more prominently than they do in North America. Um, They're tolerated because they do actually... Uh, work. They keep the economy running in some places. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's the difference in concept. That's that's the main thing I want to get across to people is that money can be a promise of something specific from someone specific, and in that sense, it's the same as the promise of gold was. It's not a promise of something in limited supply, one specific thing. Why should that be? There's an old old folk tale about a greedy king who hoarded all the gold in his kingdom and, and his peasants were reduced, reduced to eating turnips. So the the, tenant, the the peasants fought back by using turnip seeds as money. So what, what you're talking about is we've got to figure out how to use turnip seeds for money. Because <laughs> the, whole, you know, the, mother, the other money system is a monopoly, right? But turnip seeds are not a monopoly can grow turnips and connect, collect seeds, and turnip seeds will always have value to those who want to grow more turnips. And in the, and in, in the sense, this is not quite true because we want to be use more than turnip seeds as money. We want to use anything of real value as money and use the promise of it. That becomes a portable object and something that these days we can whiz around from our own computers to somebody else's computer directly without even using a bank. Exactly right. Well, as you say, the technology has arrived to make this sort of uh, talk even possible. So we are on the verge of, of really revolutionary transformations, and it's a question of whether we can get it implemented. Paul Greenone, we're going to have to leave this very fascinating uh, conversation right there. So once again, I hope people will check out Money as Debt online, and thank you once again for tuning into Corbett Report Radio. I look forward to talking to all of you again tomorrow night.